Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Sputnik News reports President Putin states Donbass tragedy forced Russia to start special military operation in Ukraine. What does this tell us about the state of things in Ukraine, particularly as it relates to media coverage? For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Thank you, sir. So it's reported uh, by Sputnik News that Russian President Putin has stated that the tragedy taking place in Donbass, quote-unquote, forced Russia to start the special military operation in Ukraine. The president lamented that the residents of Donbass have been suffering from the bombings for the last eight years, quote, Unfortunately, in the Lugansk People's Republic, a lot has changed for the worse because all these eight years it has been suffering from bombings, artillery strikes, and hostilities. And, of course, it was very, very difficult for people living there, end quote, according to President Putin. Uh, Mark, what does this say to you, not only about the rationale, uh, but what does it say to you about where this is headed now and how the Western press has been covering this because that is a narrative as historically accurate as it is, still a narrative that you don't hear in Western press. Yeah, I mean, this rationale, you know, brought up again by the president, uh, Russian president, it's nothing new. Um, it has been stated many times over, although it bears repeating again and again. Uh, you know, the current regime in Kiev, they seized power uh, in an openly West-backed, unconstitutional and violent putsch in Kiev in 2014 and almost immediately launched a military campaign, um, primarily at the time with the uh, far-right battalions off the Maidan uh, because the military was not immediately responsive to the new regime's desires in an attempt to force the people of eastern Ukraine who did not approve of the Maidan, you know, half of the population of Ukraine did not, um, and uh, it was an attempt to force them to accept, you know, the, their seizure of power in Kiev. And uh, the resulting civil conflict um, has been ongoing for the last eight years. And yes, Russia was providing assistance to the people of East Ukraine, uh, funding arms training, uh, just like NATO was providing much greater amounts of funding, arms and training uh, to the new regime that they helped bring to power in Kiev. Uh, so this was a civil conflict as much as the regime in Kiev tries to deny that. They, they declared it an anti terrorist operation zone, as if all of the millions of people in the region are terrorists. Um, and in the Western press, they were regularly denied agency um, and um, uh, derided as pro-Russian. Well, more to the fact they're not 
pro-Maidan, they're anti-Maidan, and they're not rapidly anti-Russian, but that describes half the population of Ukraine, uh, certainly uh, you know, half of, of, of the pre-war population. Um, so um, uh, this is it, – it's really amazing, right, uh, the way that the Western media has, has leapt – on this, uh, you know, the the tragedy, the humanitarian crisis, and where were they during the last eight years when fifteen thousand people were killed in East Ukraine? But those people were not geopolitically aligned with U.S. Uh, and other uh, its allies' uh, interests, and because they were quote pro-Russian unquote, I guess they are less deserving of sympathy and consideration of their lives and human rights. You know, Mark, I think this discussion underlines the actual importance of the online censorship that is going on right now. It's such a, you know, it's such a, a, a huge uh, um, consequence to us all. This is a discussion that's worthy. I don't care where someone falls on the ideological spectrum, political spectrum, whether they're U.S. absolute nationalist. This is a nuanced issue. It's not like President Putin, that this is about Putin, that he woke up one morning and said, you know, I've been unprovoked, but I'm not doing anything. Today's a two, Thursday. Hey, let's attack, an, attack in a, country, a, a country. There's a history here. And might I add, it, it, uh, uh, even aside from the previous eight years, on the final days before the special operation happened, there were upwards of 8,000, if I'm not mistaken, over 8,000 violations of the ceasefire by the Ukrainian military. They had really already started a military assault on the Donbass. It seems to me to say that it would, that would be provocation would be an understatement. They had literally, though they hadn't crossed the contact line physically with, you know, with armored personnel carriers and tanks, they really had started a, um, a military assault on the um, civilian areas of the Donbass. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really some, not something that can be denied because even the OSCE, and, and they were very strongly tilted towards the, the Kiev regime in their, their accounting and, and, and their reporting uh, in general, even they had to acknowledge that the you know, vast majority, uh, you know, uh, starting from, from uh, you know, the last three years of violations are, are uh, you know, shells, explosions that fell on Donbass, uh, the non-government uh, side of the conflict line. That is, the people there were being shelled. And this had escalated, uh, particularly since uh, December of, of last year uh, through uh, uh, January and, and early February of, of the last few months. And again, it's not something that really can be denied or should be denied, I should say, but you know, regularly is at least ignored. Um, and the, uh, you know, the fact that the Russian president once again is reiterating this, uh, you know, that this is one of the primary reasons, you know, justifying in the Russian government's view, the intervention is to stop the, the terror, uh, to stop the war crimes uh, against the people of East Ukraine that have been committed uh, for eight years. And because 
uh, twice before the forces of Donbass uh, defeated uh, the Kiev regime forces in the field and each time they came back. That is why the Russian government is also for their intervention insisting on demilitarization and denazification, better termed as debanderization, uh, because to make sure that they cannot come back again and threaten the lives uh, and the, the safety and the peace of the people of East Ukraine again. I want to just quickly add to, to Garland's uh, very clear narrative that <clears throat> what we've also been bombarded with in, in the predicate that initiated a lot of the discussion in the West is that Vladimir Putin is insane and that he wants to uh, reunite the Soviet Union. And I think those two things, those two elements in the narrative make it very easy then for those in the West to dismiss the, the, the history and the pretext that you and Garland just uh, just spoke to. Uh, there's another piece, ex-CIA officer, Biden is surrounded by a band of rogues who want to destroy, destroy Russia. Philip Giraldi made the remarks in an article thinking harder about false flags and other fables, which uh, came out yesterday. Uh, your thoughts about my comment, Mark, and then, and then what uh, Phil Giraldi uh, is, is now highlighting. Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, simple common sense examination of the course of the conflict, right? Since 2014, uh, Russia was not trying to annex Donetsk and Lugansk, right? They were not trying to annex the Donbass. In fact, they were refusing uh, attempts by the authorities in Donbass to say, hey, just make us part of Russia. Russia was saying no. Their argument, the whole purpose of the Minsk Accords was simply to provide the regions of East Ukraine with, with de-federalization, with uh, effective local autonomy to protect their own uh, political, linguistic, cultural, uh, and, and social rights. Right. That's what Russia was fighting for. It was only after eight years and the bloodshed continuing and the acceleration of the de facto NATOization of Ukraine on the ground, presenting an even greater threat to the people of East Ukraine and to the security of Russia, that Russia was finally forced to act um, and, uh, you know, to, to counter the narrative of an insane dictator Putin, um, and I'm sorry from from this perspective, from from my perspective, with family in Crimea and and uh, my wife's family uh, all over East Ukraine, uh, the other side is presented by a uh, insane, senile septuagenarian. Uh, in uh, complete bondage to his own military-industrial complex uh, that will gladly fight uh, Russian influence in this part of the world, uh, and, and that includes the, uh, the ethnic Russians and the Sovak East Ukrainians, down to the last Ukrainian conscript that he can shove a weapon in their hands uh, and, and force uh, onto the battlefield. Um, <laughs> Is Biden surrounded by a band of rogues who want to destroy Russia? Well, yes, but only if you consider the pretty much the entirety of the not not just the Biden administration, uh, but the entirety of the U.S. 
security services and foreign policy elite, the blob, as Ben Rhodes called it, to be a band of rogues. Because there, there really are no dissenting voices. There haven't been any dissenting voices, you know, against a continual policy of expansion and confrontation, not just with Russia, but with China, with Iran, uh, you know, and and that means military confrontation as well as as covert and economic uh, and so forth. Um, this is uh, there are no dissenting views really within. Uh, any of the last few administrations and the dominant foreign policy elite. We've just heard a few voices start to emerge, like with the Kinsey Institute uh, in the last few years, the Kinsey Institute for Responsible Statecraft, where realists are starting to uh, you know, uh, throw up their hands and, and say enough and actually getting some small voice in the echo chamber that is Washington, but certainly none of these people are in government or the security services uh, or you know the State Department, and they haven't been for you know not not back to the the first <laughs> George uh, Bush uh, George Herbert Walker Bush administration. An interesting article um, in uh, Moon of Alabama, and that's Russia has launched phase two of its operation. But, you know, there's been I've heard a lot of discussion, Mark, um, about, you know, phase two, phase one. Is it all one phase? We've got about a minute. Your thoughts on um, where we are as far as which phase of the operation it is, as, as how we see it, as opposed to how the Russian military sees it. Yeah, I, I think I mean that's just the way the Russian military is is terming it, and I do think it makes some sense. A big part of the first phase was creating the cauldron again against this, the majority of the Ukrainian regular armed forces, some forty to a hundred thousand troops. It's unclear exactly how many, well fortified in on the outskirts of Donbass. This is going to be a World War II size and scale military conflict with heavy fire, heavy artillery, uh, tanks. Uh, Russia has air dominance, uh, but it is going to be a a scale of conflict not seen uh, really anywhere because you know uh, the U.S. invading Iraq doesn't quite qualify uh, in, in in terms of of uh, the the pure type of the military competition here. Um, it's going to be uh, huge and devastating, uh, you know, un, uh, unless you know the Ukrainian forces take the Russian offer of surrender. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. Uh, let, let me just quickly ask you this. To, to that last point, what's the likelihood that that's going to happen? Orders have already been received uh, uh, by uh, – there were a few – uh, a t a surrenders of a few of the Mariupol defenders who managed to get through. Orders have been signed by the Ukrainian um, uh, deputy of, of National uh, Guard Defense that any uh, one attempting to surrender to Russian forces is to be immediately summarily executed. So I don't think the likelihood of that is is very high. No, that sounds like a no. Again, Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Judge sends Assange extradition decision to U.K. government. A British judge earlier today formally approved the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States to space to face spy charges. The case will now go to Britain's interior minister for a decision, and the WikiLeaks founder still has legal avenues of appeal. For further insight into this, let's turn to our next guests. We're joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch and the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, welcome back. Good to be here. So the order comes after the U.K. Supreme Court last month refused Assange permission to appeal against a lower court's ruling that he could be extradited. Um, A judge at Westminster Magistrates Court issued the order in a brief hearing. And now Home Security Secretary uh, Preeti Patel will decide whether to grant the extradition. Jim Cavanaugh, what does all of this now mean to you? Well, it's a continuation. I'm, ve- I'm very glad, first of all, that we're covering this. You know, it's been in the background most uh, too much in, over the past years and certainly now with other things going on. But it's extremely important. You know, uh, it's not unexpected what happened, and Julian Assange is going to be in. It's going to go on for more weeks or months in Britain, uh, and it's very unlikely that Pretty Patel will refuse to extradite him. And this is going to go on for a long time. Assange has been in jail and in prison, in maximum security prison in Britain for two was it three two years now three years, and he's been essentially under arrest for ten years. And, you know, as Caitlin Johnson said, Johnstone said today, this is a situation in which the United States, which is accusing other countries of war crimes, is prosecuting a journalist for revealing its own war crimes. And it's really horrible. It's a horrible uh, thing that's already happened, and it's already put the fear into, into journalists, I am sure. They have to say, be saying to themselves, will I report on these things? Or will I suffer the fate that Julian Assange has already suffered? And if Julian Assange comes to the United States and is put on trial, where he will almost certainly be found guilty in the court in Virginia uh, for a possible 175-year sentence, it will be, you know, chilling for independent journalism throughout the world. Someone who's not even an American, who didn't do work in America, you know, who's, who's, who, who published with the, with the cooperation of major news, news outlets in the world, The Guardian, The New York Times. And uh, he's going to be thrown in jail. And uh, it is something which we should, everybody should have on their minds all the time, and we should be fighting about it. And it's just too bad that we're not. Unfortunately, the media in this country and the progressive Democrats in this country don't want to say a word about it. Steve Poikin, and he's not an American. He's didn't, he hadn't set foot in America, but he sure embarrassed the hell out of a lot of Americans. Steve Poikin. The, the United States is using a third party in the UK after using, and I do mean using in the most abusive sense, uh, uh, third parties through Switzerland, Sweden, 
through parties Please. through Ecuador it, to uh, to gain international jurisdiction over the press. And, and effectively, to, to put it in the most simple of analogies, if anyone who's listening to this show was vacationing in, um, let's say, you know, France, and they had a no jaywalking law, um, and I'm, or I'm sorry, if you're vacationing in France and you walk across the street and you jaywalk, it's the same thing as a third-party country saying, hey, you can't jaywalk in our country, so we're going to arrest you, and we're going to throw you in our prison and give you the longest possible sentence for jaywalking that we can. It doesn't matter that you did it in a third country. It doesn't matter that you did it in a country where jaywalking may be legal. Because it happened and we caught you, we're taking you. That's insane. And it's happening to the press. It's happening to, you know, through our means of effectively communicating the way that the world operates around us. Uh, and the silence on the part of the international media, even the corporate press, who does have uh, a little bit of skin in the game, is is just beyond shocking. Um, you know, Jim, two two things to kind of uh, uh, go on with what Steve was saying. Number one, I think this does, and if Julian Assange gets here, will expose our, our press for exactly what it is. They don't believe that they have to worry about what's happening to Julian Assange happening to them because they're simply stenographers for, for, for power, be it the government, corporations, intelligence, whatever. Um, that's one thing. I think the other thing is it shows that there's no element. I mean, we've heard a few people, you know, a few, sadly, a few libertarians in the Republican Party have spoken out, haven't heard anything from the Democratic Party. So there's not like a progressive or a free speech block of people in the Democratic Party, not a group, the squad, anybody who all come together and say, we as a group are going to really put this at the top of our list. It just shows to me that the both, both of the parties, that we have a uniparty and there's nobody there to push back for power. The best they're going to do is come together and say there's not enough censorship on Facebook or YouTube. Jim. Yeah, exactly. We're in a situation now where, you know, you could have a couple of years ago imagined that the press would certainly have an interest in this, the mainstream press. Who, as I say, the major outlets also published what Julian Assange published and and partnered with him. Uh, but, you know, now we're in a situation this in, in a country which is so much worse, where the mainstream media is out there arguing for censorship. And, you know, we can't have people running wild and saying, having free speech on the Internet. So, and, you know, anything that has a whiff that it might uh, give an advantage in some possible way to the specter of Donald Trump or there some Republican or, you know, is, you can, has to be denounced and abandoned anyway. So, you know, there's very little hope that uh, any political faction of influence in this country is going to stand up for Assange. And I'll say again, including the progressive, so-called progressive Democrats, the squad, Bernie Sanders, this is something they should be adamant about, and they should be pushing all the time. The Biden administration can put an end to this. It was the Trump administration that brought these charges against Assange. The Obama administration didn't do it, uh, give him credit, but it was the Trump administration that did this. And the Biden administration is pursuing the agenda against Assange that Trump decided to do because it's the agenda 
of the ruling class of the military, industrial, and national security state. And for left, anybody who says they're a progressive in some way, not to focus on this powerful, you know, argument about, as Steve said, the extraterritorial jurisdiction of the United States, uh, you know, censorship, squashing freedom of the press, then, you know, they have no credibility whatsoever. And unfortunately, we're in that position, and the only place you're going to hear about it is places like this. And Jake Johnson has a piece, Journalism is Not a Crime, Outrage as Judge Approves Assange Extradition. It's interesting how there's a total blackout of this in Western press that to me parallels the the uh, the, the misinformation and disinformation campaign that's been waging uh, on behalf or being waged on behalf of the Ukraine. Uh, Steve Poikinen, it's, you know, you, it's almost you have to ask yourself, why turn on the television set anymore? Because I can't trust what I'm being told. Well, you shouldn't turn on your television set anymore, <laughs> Wilmer. You should tune into Sputnik Radio from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday. Right? That's a great idea, Steve. Yeah, yeah. You can you can hop on the rocks in. You can check out Slow News Day and the AM Wake Up. You can, uh, you know, you can read Gem through the Polemicist. You can watch Garland uh, a number of different ways. You don't have to give your time and energy to people who are going to abuse it. You don't have to give over whole sections of your life to an ideology that wants to kill you. You don't have to do these things. It's just a matter of realizing it. I'm finding a little bit of self-determination or maybe seeking some guidance outside of yourself in order to stand up and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be abused like this anymore. Jim Cavanaugh, same point to you. Uh, again, in this instance, there seems to be a blackout as it relates to, to Ukraine. It's just a steady stream of misinformation, disinformation, and as NBC.com reported, lies for the noble, for the noble lie. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at, I just went back. I published my first article on Assange, two articles on Assange, April 2019, you know, three years ago. And I was part of the New York, you know, establishing New York uh, Free Assange Committee. And, you know, that's, so that's three years ago. And not only I, of course, but a lot of people, as Steve says, it's out there. You know, Caitlin Johnson talks about it. Gordon Greenwald has talked about it. I've written about it. Yeah. You consortium news all over the place. You know, there it's out there. You know, but in the meantime, it just doesn't get. You know, unless the mainstream media picks up a story, and as you say with Ukraine, hammers it every day, repeats and repeats, and makes sure that you get the line, and the line is repeated to you, and you get the talking points, and they're repeated to you hourly and daily and weekly. Then it's going to disappear. You know, they can put an article about it every. You know two months on the op-ed page and then or, you know, on page three or page five. So they say they, they're covering it, but they're, they're, not, they're not covering it. They're hiding it essentially by this kind of minimal coverage behind this huge screen of whatever it is that they want you to pay attention to. And that's what you pay attention to. And it's very depressing to see this. And, you know, because there are a lot of, there's a lot of writing about it and there's a lot of people talking about it, but, it doesn't penetrate the uh, the establishment in in any way. I, I'll say this: 
I think they're losing. I think this thing is falling apart. And uh, CNN put out this thing, CNN Plus. And within days after CNN Plus coming out, came out, they, they, they're they best just about saying they're going to have to shut it down because nobody's watching. I think the censorship that they're doing is because they're losing, because there's so many options. It's like whack-a-mole now, and they censor one and another one of us pops up or we pop up on another platform. So I think there is some positivity to be seen here, Wilmer. I would uh, concur with you wholeheartedly, uh, Garland. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both so much for your time. As always, thank you for your analysis. Jim Cavanaugh, Steve Poikinen, we really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TV station, uh, Chinese television system, CTS, has apologized for news tickers that ran on its cable news station indicating that China was attacking Taiwan earlier today and blamed the blunder on a display setting error. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, KJ No. As always, KJ, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So among the news tickers seen at the bottom of the cable TV station's morning news program earlier today were new Taipei City hit by People's Liberation Army ground force missiles and vessel explodes in Taipei Harbor facilities and ships destroyed. KJ, I know that a lot of news stations in anticipation of events, they prepare tickers and scrolls. Uh, for example, if if they if they're expecting someone famous to die, they'll 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 put the whole piece together, even though the person is still is still living. The, when I read this, that's what I thought. Well, they they were they had already prepared for this. Somebody just unfortunately hit the play button. Yes, uh, that sounds good, and that's definitely true with obituaries. But this has too much specificity. You know, they said that ships in Taipei port have exploded. Bangkok station is reported to have been set on fire uh, by explosives placed by special forces of, you know, the PLA. So there's too much specificity. I understand that you could prepare tickers that are generic, but this has too much specificity. And CTS did retract the ticker report broadcast but it waited for three hours before it did that. So what we know is that uh, even if it was done by error, um, these reports and messages with very highly specific claims are preloaded. The content is preloaded into the system. And so that's very, very worrisome. Another thing which is worrisome is they waited for three hours uh, to retract because the moment that went on the screen, there would have been thousands of people calling in to confirm or ask for more information. So they took their time. And then last but not least, you know, this they claim that this was 
a kind of a simulation for an all-points disaster bulletin rehearsal. But only the Chinese invasion was broadcast. And um, if it was just for the fire department, as they claim, why did it have so much broad ideological messaging unrelated to the mechanics of disaster rehearsal? So there are many, many questions that this um, event raises. Uh, and uh, I think it's incumbent that, you know, the government clarify, because otherwise uh, we get very much the sense that this is the rehearsal, not only for war with China, but also for a false flag. You know, it. Um, in, in looking at it, I mean, if we're honest, it's obvious that this was, and I don't believe this was Taiwan. I believe, as they, as as fifty one retired intelligence officials said, um, right around our election, it has all the earmarks of a CIA operation. It has all the earmarks of CIA propaganda. And I think the oh, the to me, the question is not whether or not this is CIA propaganda, because after you know the Lindsey Graham's and all of the Hawks show up to Taiwan. And what do you know? Within a week or two, this CIA propaganda operation is underway. Um, The only question is, you know, what is their plan here? Are they trying to prepare people for an attack? Are they trying to, is this a poke at China? Is this, you know, who is this directed to? Or is this, to you know, you know, knowing that this is going to be outrageous, it's going to be covered everywhere, is this something to spread out to the American people and the people in the West? And at any rate, your thoughts on the reasoning for this, what I would say is a fairly obvious and straightforward intelligence operation. Yes. You know, to be honest, Garland, I don't have good answers to your question. I just have a lot of questions. I do know Having lived in South Korea a good chunk of my life, I've been through hundreds of uh, disaster rehearsals for attack from North Korea, and they never had the content and the specificity that this, um, you know, uh, ticker had. And so um, I think it's important to note that even if this was broadcast by mistake, um, um, there, you know, there's too much specificity, um, and uh, and they don't relate to disaster rehearsal messages. For example, they have no information about how to seek refuge or safety, and they, it comes directly on the heels of a civilian war preparation manual that was just very recently distributed by the government. So for me, once again, all of this signals that, you know, this is, uh, these are signals that indicate that there are some serious war preparations with China going on uh, right now. Is it directed to the Taiwanese? Very possibly. Is it directed to the West? Uh, Very possibly. Um, Does it increase the ambient sense of uh, risk and prepare the population for, um, for war? Uh, definitely. Final question for me on, on this. Do you have any indication as to how far this resonated? Uh, did it resonate within the government? Were were alerts within the government signaled, or was this strictly for domestic consumption? Well, it doesn't look like that there was any serious response from the government. As far as domestic responses, certainly some people were panicked. 
uh, but other people disregarded it. And I think that speaks to the general fact that the Taiwanese themselves uh, do not want a war, and they don't really consider the possibilities of war with China to be uh, really credible. You know, China wants peaceful reunification with the province of Taiwan. It does not want to engage in a war against its own country people. So uh, I think it remains to be seen. I'm, you know, watching the wires carefully to see if there's further clarification from the government. But at the very least, you know, there is a lot of explaining to do. The last thing I'll say about this, and I think it is a fairly important question, and that is, do you think the Taiwanese, I mean, I'll put it like this. If I were Taiwanese and I were looking at Ukraine, I'd say, you know, I think I know how this works. The U.S. wants to goad them into attacking me, blowing the living crap out of me. And then they'll say, hey, in your honor, we shall avenge your death by putting all the sanctions we can possibly come up with on on China. You know that they already know the reality is the U.S. has no plans on helping them. They just want to get Chinese to blast the crap out of them so that they can then have an excuse for the uh, for the sanctions. Do you think the Chinese? I mean, excuse me, the Taiwanese have pretty much fi- clearly their government has it. But do you think they're or, or doesn't care, whatever the case, that the people in Taiwan are starting to figure this out? Um, I, I think some of them are starting to figure it out. Certainly, they do not want to be part of the U.S.'s proxy war against China the way that Ukraine is currently. And of course, you know, sanctions after you are dead do you no good. Taiwan is one eighteenth the size of Ukraine. Uh, and it, you know, it's a very, very different situation. The only common situation between Ukraine and Taiwan is that the U.S. is using uh, is using Taiwan to provoke China by uh, crossing all of its red lines, and China has carefully, consistently, and uh, insistently warned the U.S. not to do this. So the Taiwanese don't want the fight. Uh, you know, they don't have the capacity to fight. Uh, and the U.S. would like nothing better uh, than to fight China to the last person on Taiwan Island. China confirms signing of Solomon Island Security Pact as U.S. warns of regional instability. Uh, China confirmed the signing of a closely watched agreement yesterday saying it was intended to promote peace and stability. Uh, give us an update on uh, where are we with uh, with this and, and what does it mean going forward? Well, I think the key thing to note is that it is signed already. Now, what had happened was that the Australians had sent in all of their uh, you know, top diplomats and spy masters, essentially to threaten the Solomon Islands not to sign this agreement. Uh, and then that had not worked. So then they had really pulled out the big guns. That is to say, Kurt Campbell, the man who architected the pivot to Asia himself, they were going to send him. And what the Solomon Islands did is they simply signed it before he turned up. So now he's faced with fait accompli, you know, his you know, his trip is going to be, you know, uh, an exercise in futility. But it speaks to the way in which Australia thinks that it, the Solomon Islands is its backyard. It has its own sort of Monroe doctrine. It does not um, uh, support, you know, self-determination of these islands. That 
it has largely enslaved and used as migrant labor on their sugar plantations, you know, for, for a very, very long time. And so this, you know, is, is, a, is a sea change. It's a shift. These countries that have been exploited and enslaved are starting to, you know, find their way out of this uh, unforced underdevelopment. And they're signing an agreement with China to be part of the Belt and Road and to have real development rather than um, real development for infrastructure rather than money thrown at, you know, various corrupt officials. Uh, to keep them in um, the U.S. and Taiwanese, uh, you know, strategic uh, uh, order. Am I wrong? We got one about one minute. Am I wrong in thinking that the um, crisis in Ukraine, that conflict, is one of the reasons that uh, other that countries like Solomon's Island are starting to feel as though there's an opportunity for them to um, be more independent of the U.S. empire? Got a, one minute. I think it's definitely one factor, but for the Solomon Islands, the key factor was the fact that in 2019, it uh, broke ties with Taiwan province and decided that it was going to go with China, which is its natural partner, since it does 62% of its trade with China. And as a result of that, Malaita, you know, which is one of the islands, uh, you know, tried to stage a color revolution and also tried to secede from the group. And seeing all of that and seeing that its previous agreement in Australia was not helping it, Australia is part of the problem, they decided to sign an agreement with China. And I think that will yield multiple benefits for the Solomon Islands. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times reports after Kim's missile test, South Korea, U.S. drills kick off. With a new administration poised in Seoul, the Koreans, Japan, Russia, and the U.S. flex military muscles in the region. What does this mean for peace and stability going forward? Let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, sir, welcome back. Glad to be back. So South Korea and the U.S. kicked off nine-day military drills on Monday, one day after North Korea conducted its 13th missile test this year. Meanwhile, joint Japanese-U.S. naval drills have sparked a Russian response in the Sea of Japan. Uh, Dr. Hammond, how much of these joint drills and exercises are standard fare versus Increased muscle flexing around the missile test, as the um, uh, and the U.S. Uh, visits to Taiwan. Well, of course, it's. I mean, it's all part of a of a, of a long term uh, American posture in in East Asia of trying to uh, confront and contain uh, not obviously not just uh, the the DPRK, but 
you know, behind that, uh, uh, this is all directed in, at China as well. Uh, you know, I think that uh, these exercises, certainly the exercises in South Korea, the joint U.S.-South Korean exercises, these go on every year. Uh, and, and you know, this has been going on for a long time. There were efforts to try to kind of downgrade that or at least soft pedal that for a while uh, during the Trump years when Trump was trying to uh, do whatever it was he was trying to do with engaging with uh, with North Korea and meeting with uh, with uh, Kim, the, the North Korean leader. But, uh, you know, now the Biden administration obviously is once again ramping up. It's, uh, it's I suppose you could say it's forward policy in East Asia. Uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, mentioning the situation down with Taiwan, U.S. is engaged in a lot of provocative activity down there. So, you know, resuming these, uh, these, these activities, resuming these drills in South Korea, while it's certainly not unprecedented, this has happened many times in the past, it's a, it's a pretty clear indication that, uh, you know, the United States is, is committed to this confrontational approach to things uh, across East Asia. The, the joint exercises with Japan are, are, are a little bit, uh, uh, not entirely new, but they're part of a, of a process of kind of upgrading Japan's military uh, establishment. You know, for a long time after World War II, Japan kept a very, very low military profile. The self-defense forces were, were really very minimal. But in more recent years, nationalist politicians in Japan have been pushing military upgrading, and these exercises are, are part of that. So, uh, you know, there's a it's not a, a dramatic escalation of things, but it's part of this long campaign of America to to promote its interests, as they say, in uh, in East Asia and to maintain its its position as the imperial hegemon in that part of the world. You know, Ken, if I could ask you this, what's interesting is that the narrative is that North Korea, you know, as, as always, is run by a madman, that that's just a paranoid hermit country. But I, I, it's like this. If you're on my doorstep with a gun pointed at me and you're practicing shooting me and you've got like a dummy with, that has the name Garland written on it and you're like stabbing it with bayonets every day, am I really paranoid? You know, it seems to me that um, North Korea has what could be considered a very rational and reasonable concern that the United States may attack them at any given time. And then let's be honest, in all likelihood, if they didn't have nuclear weapons, that's probably what would have already happened. Ken. Well, uh, and also, Garland, let me just quickly add to that, Ken. As they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they ain't chasing you. Well, that's very true. That's very true. No, I mean, obviously, the, the history of the Korean Peninsula uh, since the end of World War II, the end of its its incorporation into the Japanese Empire, has been one of, you know, a pretty relentless pressure by the United States. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the division of the peninsula, which was meant to be temporary, uh, has been inscribed over time because of America's complete unwillingness to countenance, countenance any kind of reunification other than the extension of American dominance over the North. Uh, you know, uh, the, the war that was fought there in the early 50s was a, was a terribly destructive one aimed at the total eradication of North Korea. That obviously failed. 
uh, thanks in part to you know the support that uh, that China provided, and China has remained you know pretty pretty steadfast in in trying to at least help North Korea protect itself from uh, you know from from American aggression. But yeah, I mean North Korea, their their view of the world, their view of the United States, their view of the situation in the South. You know, no other country has twenty eight thousand troops stationed in North Korea. South Korea has 28,000 American troops, and, you know, it, the, the South Korean army itself is under American military command and control. So if conflict were to break out on the peninsula, the South Korean army would simply be an extension of American armed forces. Uh, that's something that no South Korean government has been able to renegotiate. The United States is not willing to forego its control over the South Korean army. So, yeah, I mean, North Korea is looking at things with, a, I think, a pretty clear eye, and they're entirely uh, uh, correct in, in, in learning the lessons of history that countries that have abandoned, like Libya, uh, abandoned their ability to defend themselves, even to the point of perhaps trying to develop a nuclear capability, have met uh, pretty sad fates, and uh, North Korea doesn't want that. North Korea you know, has its ability to, to defend itself. It does, it's not an aggressive posture. They're not going to be, you know, all this propaganda in America about how, oh, North Korea could launch missiles to attack North America, to attack the United States. You know, that's not the point. The point is to have a credible deterrent to be able to just keep the United States at least at some distance, keep them at a little bit of arm's length, uh, because they're the ones that are menacing the situation there. They're the ones that that, you know, failed to destroy North Korea 70 years ago or, you know, so, but, but certainly are still intent upon projecting their power, of course, anywhere in the world they can, but most particularly in East Asia around the, the periphery of, uh, of China. There's another story, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan teeter toward a border war. Pakistan launches lethal airstrikes on Afghan territory in response to cross-border militant attacks on its security forces. Uh, what's going on here and what's really at the crux now of this conflict between the two? Well, this is a conflict that has, again, has deep roots uh, in history. It has deep roots in, in history of, of uh, Western colonialism in, in South Asia. You know, Afghanistan is, is a country uh, that is itself internally, it's it's a multi-ethnic country. There are significant uh, different ethnic communities within Afghanistan. One of those, one of the more uh, uh, populous and, and more prominent ones, are the Pashtun. But the Pashtun population exists not only in Afghanistan, but in in what's now Pakistan. And the two parts, and they're almost equal in size, of the of the Pashtun. Uh, uh, territories, the places where Pashtun people live, um, are divided. The border between Pakistan and Afghanistan today is something called the Durand Line, which was established back in, in 1893 by the British as a way of dividing and controlling uh, you know, the, uh, what had been a very, very challenging local population for British colonialism in, in, in India. The legacy of that, of course, Pakistan inherits its territory, when the British bail out of India in 1947, Pakistan is created as a new country, and it, it takes over that, uh, that frontier, that border. Afghanistan has never accepted the Durand line. The Pashtun community is, is arbitrarily divided. This is a legacy we see in many post-colonial societies around the world, and it's, it continues to be a source of friction. So, 
What's going on now, I think, is, is, is politically very complex. And I, I have to say, I don't really fully understand it. Uh, you know, the, the Taliban, the new government in Afghanistan, of course, has its origins and, and, and for many years has had a lot of significant support, not always overt, uh, from the security forces in Pakistan. But Pakistan itself has its internal divisions, its political uh, upheavals. We saw the recent uh, elimination of, uh, of Imran Khan as the prime minister with the manipulation of the United States there. So there are different forces within Pakistan uh, as well. And uh, apparently those which are calling the shots on this border situation are, are, are less sympathetic, shall we say, to the Taliban than, uh, than others. But for the Taliban, you know, for Afghanistan, and especially, of course, for the Afghan people, this is a very, very difficult moment. Being abandoned, uh, you know, by the United States, uh, the United States confiscating all these Afghan assets, people in Afghanistan are facing a very, very difficult time. This clash on the border, a legacy of colonialism and unfortunately of certain political elements in Pakistan, is not, it's not helping anybody. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a dangerous situation for people on both sides of the border, whether they're Pashtun or, or others. Asia Times has a fairly preposterous article about Australia has a China problem in the Pacific. And they say Australia's next government will, will need to contend with China's growing threat in the region. Canberra considers its threat of influence. So a country of 25 million considers it it has a threat of influence over a country of 1.4 billion that is the world's uh, uh, industrial engine here's the way i read it the, that that australia is nothing but a tool nothing but part of the um american uh, the us empire and the us empire says one of our puppets needs to claim a a, a, a sphere of influence and rather rather than admit that it's just a vassal colony of the us empire your thoughts well, sure, that, that sort of, uh, you know, uh, governance or colonialism through proxies is something that, that the, old, uh, the old European colonial empires did. The United States has done in various ways. Uh, Australia, you know, the, uh, the, the conveniently white settler colonies of places like Australia and New Zealand, uh, uh, you know, have, have often served as, as proxies, as, as extensions of American interests. Uh, in 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 many parts of the world, not just in 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 the, in the Pacific, but you know the United States for a long time uh, spent much of the the later 19th century and the 20th century projecting its power out across the Pacific, and obviously uh, the the situation we just talked about with Korea and Japan and what's happening up there, the United States wants to have its control, its dominance, it's, it's, it's not even a sphere of influence, it's just their area of, of control, extend all the way up right to the Asian mainland. Uh, and, and indeed, if they can establish themselves on that mainland, they want to do that as well. Uh, you know, for a long time, that was simply a matter of, of maintaining their, their, their power in a region that, that they were extracting a lot of wealth from. Now, of course, it's also contained at trying to counter and, and, and halt, if possible, the reemergence of China as a significant force in, in world affairs. So Australia, you know, they're, they're a nice little proxy. Uh, and the idea, of course, that, that this, uh, the article is really talking about the, these new developments in the Solomon Islands. And, you know, American diplomats are going to the Solomon Islands. Everybody's very, very cranked up about the idea that 
that the Solomon Islands, which are, after all, a sovereign country, have uh, have made political engagements with China, and that's going to be to their economic benefit. It's going to help them out with their own security relations. Australia hates to see that. The United States hates to see that because anything that moves the slightest little pawn on the chessboard out of American dominance is viewed as as a threat. And and you know it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. You know, it doesn't matter how 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 relatively small that that piece might be. Anything that's that that China does, any any positive move involving China is going to be seen as anathema by by American leaders and their their Australian minions. Uh, so we just have one minute left, and so I'm a little confused as to has China actually signed the agreement with the Solomon Islands or is that still in process? Well, the agreement seems to be uh, still being discussed, uh, okay. but there, there's clearly there's clearly a, uh, a, a desire and, a, and indeed a commitment on, on, on both sides to to work this out, to make this, uh, you know, a, a viable relationship. Solomon Islands, uh, you know, again, they're, they're a sovereign country. They get to do this. Uh, they want to be part of China's, uh, you know, the, the influence that China's having, the, the benefits that come from mm-hmm. working with China, uh, not being, you know, just under America's thumb. Got it. Uh, you know, so, so this is going to be a developing situation, and it's going to be one that will be interesting to see how it plays out. But it's hardly, you know, it's hardly the end of the world for the United <laughs> States or Australia. Uh, but they they just hate to see any anybody that isn't completely under their under their oversight. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. I'm always glad to be here. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Warmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Macron and Le Pen square off for decisive debate as vote looms. In the climax of France's presidential campaign, centrist President Emmanuel Macron and far-right contender Marine Le Pen are meeting this evening in a one-on-one TV debate that promises to be tough for both. How significant is this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist, syndicated columnist, and holds a French passport. Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So it's reported that this debate is promising to be tough for both. What are the difficulties facing Le Pen and facing Macron? Well, Le Pen has the uh, dual problem of her right, far right wing past, uh, which uh, puts her on the far right extreme of French politics. Uh, this is her second time running against Macron, third time running for the presidency. Her father was the head of the uh, National Front, also far-right xenophobic party. And so she, her big challenge is twofold. I mean, generally speaking, she has to present herself as a credible alternative, as someone that French people can imagine as the president of the French Republic, uh, which, uh, you know, someone with dignity and, uh, and, and gravitas 
and who is uh, moderate. She's been working on that uh, to recast herself as more of a centrist uh, and more of a nationalist who says things that, for example, she's trying to protect uh, gays from uh, discrimination by Islamic uh, fundamentalists, for example. But she also has, particularly tonight in the debate, the challenge of looking serious. Uh, last time she went up against Macron, she seemed unprepared. She was ranting and just attacking Macron, but she didn't seem to have a substantial program uh, to offer the French. Uh, this time, it's not going to be like that. Uh, Marine Le Pen is a very smart person. She has prepared for this. She knows what she did wrong. Uh, and so she's going to come to the table with a strong economic populist message talking about uh, how uh, consumer goods and services have become way too expensive in France while salaries have stagnated. She's going to present herself as the candidate of the working class and the uh, petite bourgeoisie, and, uh, and so that's what she's going to have to do. Now, unfortunately for Macron, um, even though he is still favored to win, the problem is he's the front-runner. Expectations are higher for him. He will come totally prepared, as he always does, on, uh, with good answers for every issue and every question, but he has a problem of seeming aloof and uncaring, and he hasn't really campaigned for the presidency. Uh, the French resent that a great deal. They think it's undemocratic, small d democratic. They think that he wants, that he's imperious, that he uh, campaigned as a centrist, uh, neither of the left or the right, but that it was a bait and switch, and that actually he's ended up as a right wing, pro capitalist, pro business, anti worker uh, president. And, uh, and they're furious at him. People are furious at him. Uh, this is, it's a, it's a country that feels that it's in a sense of crisis, and uh, probably, if truth be told, uh, the French people, ironically, even though they chose these, this man and this woman as first and second, repeat, uh, they probably would really wish to have other choices. They're, they're not happy. Ted, you know, as I see it from an outsider, uh, Macron's path to victory is a heavier turnout, and um, and I know I'm oversimplifying, but um, and Le Pen's path to victory being a, a lot of the left and semi-left just can't stomach Macron and they stay home. That That's her kind of path to victory. And that basically her um, best bet would be tonight, if she wants to win in a debate, would be a very simple, the rent's too damn high kind of guy kind of thing. And to stick on that and get away, you know, I, I mean, that may be wrong, but I think when people are as angry as they are right now, a very simplified message that stays on a populist economic point will beat an experienced and to be quite frank, a, um, a very able debater such as Emmanuel Macron. Your thoughts? Uh, Garland, I think you're 100% right. I also think uh, Le Pen is going to take your advice and, and do exactly what you think she should do uh, if she wants to prevail in the debate and maybe in the impossibly in the election. Um, you know, Le Pen is still a few points behind, uh, and she can close the gap by getting enough uh, Mélenchon and other left-wing supporters. And bear in mind, this is France, so we're talking about roughly a third of the electorate, um, to just think of her as harmless enough that they don't have to rally behind Macron to keep her out. They just, they're not going to want to vote for Macron, 
uh, they're not going to want to vote. Certainly not. They're not going to want to vote for her. But if they, if she can just sort of convince them that it kind of doesn't matter that much either way, uh, then they will abstain, and people will, and and that's what she's after. And following on Garland's, uh, the rent is too damn high. Macron is the landlord, so how um, how does he? explain to to the French people why the rent is so high when when he's the president and this is all happening under his watch. And the second question is, how does uh, Marine Le Pen, this is her third bite at the apple. I know in American politics, folks tend not to like the second attempt, let alone the third. I'm thinking Hillary Clinton now as they seem to be trying to position her as as to possibly run in 2024 as opposed to Joe Biden. And I'm thinking, Hillary, the third one is not the charm. So oh, wait a minute. I didn't I think Biden ran a couple times, didn't he? But no, but he didn't go. He went like nowhere. Right. He went. He went. He went incredible. Right. He dropped out before it became significant. Yeah. Um, he, he was he didn't run as the as the as the party nominee. That that's what I'm. That that's what I'm looking. Right, that's that, yeah. that's where I, that's where I am with that. So so your thoughts, Ted? In a way that Americans cannot really understand, Macron really owns this the present situation in France to an extent that probably we haven't seen in this country, perhaps since uh, LBJ's uh, election after 1964 or FDR after 1932. Uh, we're talking about a president who uh, not only controls a very strong executive, but he has overwhelming his party is very personal. It's basically his personal party, and it controls an overwhelming majority in the French parliament. Uh, he, the, the French economy is far more under the, the control of the executive branch than it is in many other democracies, including the United States. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's basically uh, done the one thing that the French just don't want to see. He's Americanizing the economy. He's uh, re- he's uh, eliminating worker protections. He's uh, he's the candidate of austerity, and people are just furious. So you know it's his to lose, but he really could uh, because he's he has just seemed not to feel anyone's pain. Le Pen, you know, if ironically, I think Mélenchon, who came in third who's the left-wing candidate, and he only missed out by a few percentage points, would actually have a better shot against uh, Macron than Le Pen does. Le Pen is very hobbled by her xenophobic past, her association, even though she doesn't uh, talk to her father anymore, and she broke apart and, from him. Um, he and he was, uh, but you know, he was a Holocaust denier, anti-Semite. Um, you know, she, she's got that dark past, um, and, and that that that's really the cinder block attached to her leg. But if she can get the French to forget about that and think that she's basically like Pat Buchananing this thing, you know, putting France first, not wanting to, uh, you know, send anyone to any, any, uh, any camps, uh, you know, she definitely stands a chance. Let me ask you this. Um, if you, th- let's just for a second say she wins, even if she comes really, really close, but let's just say she gets over the top and wins. If you're Olaf Schultz, if you're Mario Draghi, you are in real trouble. Do, can you possibly continue um, 
acting at the beck and call of the Biden administration, if you see her fall, do you think they start backtracking or do you think they just join with the neocons to try to attack her and take her out? I think they're going to be confused at first and they're going to try to figure out if they can work with her or not. Uh, This will be a seismic shift symbolically. And the question is whether it will be a seismic shift politically. But you will hear a lot of, uh, you know, chicken littles, the sky is falling, uh, you know, kind of reminiscent of Trump's victory, but more so. Uh, This is going to be uh, viewed, by the way, as tea leaves favoring Trump for 2024. Um, It will, the world of politics will be upended because this is one of those things that, like Trump's election, is simply not supposed to be allowed, and it would show that the uh, that, that the popu- that the friend, average French voter is well and truly not only really pissed off but willing to do something about it. And we have just about a minute left. Has she really become more moderate, or is she just running more moderately? Well, nobody ever knows what's in the hearts or the brains of a politician. I mean, you know, uh, framing and messaging and lying are sort of <laughs> part of the job. Uh, so, you know, we all we can see say is, you know, what we see. And what we see is a candidate who has changed her message, who has tweaked it, uh, who has definitely run away from a lot of the positions that she previously held. And it's up to the French voters to determine if for the, you know, the best that they can guess how much of it is real, how much of it was real, and how she really changed. Uh, and, you know, if she ha- and whether it's true or not, how will she actually govern? Um, that's that's the, the 64,000 euro question. And I just don't know the answer. I, I'm going to assume she's the same old, same old, but that's just usually the way it is. Let me come at it. We got 10 seconds. Let me come at it another way. This is her third run. Has she been moderate at the as each campaign has come has 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 come up or has she up to this point stuck to her guns? 5 seconds. She has moderated uh, each run one after another and she broke from her father that way. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Hill reports Biden administration corners itself on border policy. The Biden administration has painted itself into a corner on border policy, whittling its options down to either re-implementing Trump-era asylum restrictions unpopular with migrant advocates or moving forward with a plan to lift those restrictions against the wishes of its most vulnerable Senate allies. What does this mean for U.S. policy? 
And are these the only two options really available to the administration? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a San Antonio-based specialist in immigration law as certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. He currently works on various family-based and employment-based immigration law cases, as well as deportation cases. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos, as always, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. So if you could uh, once again explain uh, Title 42 and is and as the article said or as I asked in my open, are these the only two options available to the administration? Mm-hmm. For the first part, Title 42 refers to a section of federal law general federal law that has been around for decades and will be around for decades afterwards. What started a couple of years ago was the Trump administration decided to use the public health matters in that law in order to, one, have the CDC issue an order saying that it was wanting to put a pause on several people coming to the United States for public health concerns, and therefore this was used as a justification for exempting or just not applying certain parts of the immigration laws to people coming across the U.S. border. And so what we have here is an immigration policy justified by a public health order coming during the pandemic. And now that we are at a stage in this country and really the world in which there has been a trend towards decreasing some restrictions, not just by court order, but also by um, political decisions and Mass demand, we still have the Biden administration having to vacillate in order to find out what is the best approach to here. Because, in many, to a great extent, ending the policy is to an extent a question of turning a spigot on or off. Not because individuals have stopped coming to the United States during the application of this Title 42 policy. Indeed, many people have continued coming because of pool and push factors remain unchanged, but there is a question as to whether or not many individuals who otherwise would be denied under Title 42 would then be able to come to the United States and will come to the United States if this policy is ended. As to your second question as to whether or not these are the only two options, well, I put it this way. People were deported from the United States to a great extent before Title 42 came into place. They will continue even after it is um, it is revoked. So I see here, in terms of the political matters, the Biden administration being between being between a rock and a hard place, in which the right is criticizing his decision to end this policy, whereas many people in his own party are criticizing the idea of remaining in place a measure that has prevented several individuals and to give a perspective on the matter it's estimated that since this policy came into effect it has applied 1.7 million times 1.7 million expulsions and i should note that does not mean 1.7 million people have tried to enter the united states and been deported by that The policy, because it applies each time, many individuals who have tried to come, been rejected, have tried to come again twice or a third time. Mm -hmm. And so that does not reflect the actual numbers of human beings to which this policy has applied. And I have to stress the following matter. People who entered the United States, they are still detained. 
for weeks on end. I still have many of those cases right now. And they are processed with what is called a credible fear interview to see if they have a viable case for asylum or some kind of humanitarian relief. Many of them do not, and they are deported. I've seen it happen during Title 42. I will see it happen afterwards. So this does not mean that everyone who is allowed to enter into the United States is going to be allowed to stay permanently or allowed to be released out of immigration detention at all. And those important details, I think, are lost in the discussion of what seems a binary choice end the policy or keep it. Um, Carlos, if let's say May 23rd comes and the policy ends and nothing's done, will is there something that you can say, well, on that date, this is going to happen. There's some significant change we're going to see. There's what happens on that date that we'll be able to say, you know, we'll be able to look at and see that there was a change or that people who are um, in the position of, you know, in that in, in the position on the border um, will see what's the big difference going to be. In terms of the border, the main difference is going to be the number of individuals that Border Patrol is going to have to process in some way or form as they come over. The Title 42 expulsion is usually able to be done within one business day or what have you. Whereas, as I mentioned, people who are taken into custody, then placed in a CBP holding cell, then transferred to an ICE detention center, either locally or in any other part of the country, really. That is a process that can take weeks. And at this moment, I'm actually dealing with a gentleman from Uzbekistan, who entered through Arizona, got transferred to Texas, last week was sent to Georgia, and now I'm trying to transfer his case that was for some reason venued in Denver, Colorado, down to the Georgia court in order for him to process a bond motion. He has been in the United States for the month and a half. During this entire time, he has been detained. And so advocates of Title 42 are not seeing that individuals, like this individual, still have a very tough time, even if they are not rejected right at the border. And again, all this is for the purposes of seeing if someone has a low risk of recidivism, that is a low risk of not showing up to the immigration court if they're allowed outside of detention, and also to see whether or not they have a viable asylum case in the United States. All that is taking several weeks and is putting a great pressure on those individuals coming to the U.S. So those who call the end of Title 42 the beginning of an open borders policy do not know what they are talking about. How does that resonate politically? Because at the end of the day, that really seems to be what what, what matters the most uh, in the minds of the politicians that are that are that are battling this back and forth. If I could add this real quick, in light of the poll numbers that recently came out that showed that uh, President Biden has a 24 percent approval rating amongst uh, Hispanic voters. Politically, this is very much a hot potato. In this situation, I don't see any outcome for the Biden administration that is going to please everyone or even please most people. I've gotten to that point. And the more tragic matter is this. The immigration debate in the United States, and this has been the case for the last few years, I think, has focused more on the border and recent entrance than people living in the U.S. that have been here for an extended period of time. And about a decade ago, those were the main individuals focused on by, shall we say, the powers that be in debating a potential immigration reform. And I would go 
so far as to say that so long as the immigration debate focus remains on recent entrants, on situations at the border, then it will make even more difficult in the future obtaining an immigration reform that may affect people who have long-term ties in this country. And so I just don't see a positive outcome for the Biden administration here. And you may recall that about uh, a year ago when President Biden was relatively recently inaugurated and we were having conversations as to what his immigration policy so far had been. I gave him an A minus because I was thinking in terms of him doing a slow approach to matters and also trying to focus more on benefiting immigrants within the United States and making several policy changes, the immigration court system, uh, reversing policies that affected individuals, and all that has been valued. The Biden administration has had a very significant impact in terms of um, the ability of immigrants to obtain lawful status in the United States. That cannot be ignored. But now my rating for him would be much lower, given the inability to deal in an effective manner with what is happening on the border and with recent entrants coming into the country. I just don't see enough progress over the course of the last year. And many other individuals in the country are also noticing that, hence the low poll numbers. There's a piece written by Andrea Rodriguez in AP, Cuba, U.S. immigration policy incoherent and differentiated. Two days before the opening of migration talks between Cuba and the U.S., which have been paralyzed for four years, a high-ranking Cuban official lamented, Washington's incoherent and differentiated migration policies and exhorted Washington to comply with current agreements. We've got just about two and a half minutes. Carlos, I didn't know that even they had gotten back into conversations with Cuba, but um, your thoughts on this, please. We recall how in the Obama administration, during the Obama administration, the end of the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy was ended. And that was done as part of a way to decrease tensions with the Cuban government and open things up for the first time in several decades. That was reversed during the Trump administration. That is the diplomatic relationship between and American governments. The progress in terms of relationships with other countries for, in terms of immigration, the, any political progress in terms of bringing an immigration reform closer to a reality, and the closest we came was in 2013, as you recall, and before that was in uh, 2007. That progress, I have seen that really stripped away over the course of the last five years. And indeed, the Trump administration is a great reason for that, but also the mood in much of the country has changed. Like I mentioned before, so long as the focus remains on recent entrants, people will not agree to any kind of change in terms of statute, in terms of congressional action on immigration laws, as long as what they see is people coming across the border, as opposed to people staying and progressing here in the United States. So there really is not a good solution out of this mess. Carlos Castaneda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. China Eastern Airlines flight MU-5735, the the crash investigators have found no evidence of navigation instrument failure. What are the early indications of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's the owner of Mackey International, an aviation consulting firm specializing in aviation safety, risk management, accident investigation, air carrier certification, and safety compliance. Captain Mackey has over 17,000 hours. 33 years as a captain of a B-747, A-300, DC-10, and B-727. Captain Keith Mackey, as always, welcome back. You're very welcome, Dr. Leon. Thank you very much. So all 132 people on board the China Eastern Airlines flight perished when it plunged into a hillside in southern China last month. The model 737-800, I believe, is the predecessor to the um, to the MAX, and investigators are working to retrieve data from the plane's two black boxes, which were badly damaged. But what does it mean when they say that there was no evidence of navigation instrument failure? What signs does that send? What signals does that send to you? Well, that in itself is not uh, very helpful, but it does indicate that they were able to get data from the flight data recorder, and they were able to ascertain that certain things were working properly. Uh, It isn't a case of the flight crew getting lost and causing the crash, but because they are able to retrieve that data, that's an indication that they may be able to get a whole lot more data from the flight data recorder that will really help the investigation. You know, one of the things that I find interesting and consequential, I think, is um, the uh, article says the plane's rudder, horizontal, and vertical uh, vertical stabilizers at the tail, its two engines, wings, landing gear goes on, parts of the fuselage were found at the site. Other parts of the plane have been found up to eight miles away. Does to me, I don't know, but it seems to maybe indicate that either there was some kind of explosion, it was coming apart on the way down. It's, it's, it, 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 doesn't that indicate something when, when, when you find um, parts 12 kilometers from the crash site? Let me, add, let me add one more question to that, Captain Mackey. Also, as I understand it, the plane just dropped out of the sky like a rock. So if you add that to what Garland just articulated, please continue. Well, we have the, the, uh, the radar track of the aircraft, and it indicates that it was moving horizontally at about 621 miles an hour, at about 1,000 kilometers an hour. However, it was also descending almost straight down. So uh, the vertical plus the horizontal trajectories indicate uh, a very high speed. And the fact that parts are found that far away indicates that the aircraft was coming apart on the way down. Now, whether that caused the, uh, whether some component came off that caused the accident or just the fact that the aircraft was moving so much faster than it was ever designed to uh, be able to move, would cause things like landing gear doors and things like that to come off that might have been found in another area. I mean, we'll be very concerned if we find flight controls or things like this. So the uh, the parts that were found 
a distance away from the main crash site are going to be very important to the investigation. And obviously, they know what they have. However, no one's drawn any conclusions that have been released to the public from it. Elaborate on the speed of the plane, because this is the first time that I've heard it was traveling at a rate of speed faster than it was designed to travel. What does that rate of speed do to the disintegration process? It could have caused structural components to fail that weren't designed to move at those speeds. Uh, We don't really know if the missing pieces were what could have caused the accident or if they were just a result of the aircraft uh, exceeding its stress limits and parts coming off. But the fact that they were located so far from the main wreckage indicates that the, that they were there were parts coming off the aircraft that shouldn't ha- that shouldn't have happened. Now, my understanding is, I mean, there's much talk about the Boeing 737 MAX. From what I've been able to gather, the particular aircraft that was being used for this flight um, had an excellent safety record. It's kind of like a a very, very reliable, kind of like the Toyota Corolla. What I've read, it's kind of like the Toyota Corolla of airplanes. The thing just goes on and on, and it has an incredible safety record. So it's not like this plane has a record of just dropping out of the sky. Uh, Is that correct? No, you're absolutely correct. And my understanding is uh, China Eastern Airlines, immediately after the accident, grounded two, the other 230 of the Series 800 737s during the investigation. I presume that they're back in the air by now. They certainly aren't leaving their whole fleet on the ground for well over a month. But they were taking uh, precautions to be sure that there was nothing chronic with the aircraft design. But as you say, it's been flying for many, many years. It has an excellent safety record. And it certainly doesn't have any of the systems on it that were involved in the uh, 737 MAX mishap. I want to go back to the speed because I'm sorry for being so dense here. Did you say that it was traveling at over 600 miles an hour uh, horizontally, and then went vertical? Well, that's that's the data that we have. They say it was uh, clocked on radar at 1,000 kilometers an hour, which is about 621 miles an hour. Now, normally in cruise flight at 29,000 feet, give or take, which is where the airplane was, it would be cruising at about 555 miles an hour. So what, so what would cause it to to uh, for the speed to increase almost 100 miles an hour? Well, it could have been a very strong tailwind. We don't know what the weather conditions were happening. Okay. But it was also diving. We, we know that it impacted almost vertically. So if it were coming down at a very steep and angle at a very high rate of speed, the portion of the vector, if you will, that was over the ground could have been 620 miles an hour, but the total component, the uh, uh, hypotenuse of the triangle, if you were, could have been much faster than that, Mm -hmm. which could have caused structural damage. Got you. Wow. Basically, there's an article in South China Morning Post, lands in China amid uncertainty over return, first for Chinese customers since 2019. Um, And so we know that there had been much 
concern over the 737 MAX that there had been some issues with um, software. I never really understood whether or not there was actually issues with the software or issues with pilots hadn't been properly trained with the software or some combination thereof. Have we, have you come to a conclusion as to what that issue was with the 737 MAX, um, you know, and then, and the numerous instances of, um, you know, of, of, uh, very dangerous incidents happening? Well, the, uh, 737 MAX had enough, the, the two accidents, had enough blame between them to cover almost everybody that had anything to do with the airplane. There were design failures by Boeing. There were failures of the crew not following the proper procedures. There were failures of maintenance by not changing the proper components by people who should have recognized the problem that had the opportunity to uh, uh, stop the flights that did not do it. So there was plenty of blame to go around the sum of which resulted in the two accidents. And where is your confidence level now? Because following uh, to, to the story um, that Garland just uh, just cited from the uh, China Morning Post that, it, that now the 737 MAX has landed amid uncertainty over its return. If China does not allow the 737 MAX to fly either, I guess, uh, as a Chinese airliner or through Chinese airspace, what does this do to the return of the plane internationally? Well, the plane has effectively returned. It's being operated in many places throughout the world. China was one of the few countries that really delayed uh, putting the 737 MAX into service And, of course, this accident with the 800 series uh, will just bolster that argument, even though there may not be any obvious uh, correlation between the two, because they both say 737 in their name. It's going to have some negative uh, weight, if you will, in, in getting the airplane back in service. But the Chinese, I assume... Because the the Max now, this first Max has been delivered to them, although they haven't placed it in service. Apparently, it had been stored in Guam for some time. I assume it was probably on its way to China when these Max incidents occurred, and they stopped it in Guam and then had to do some uh, work on it to get it ready to fly to China. But now it has landed in Guangzhou, which is under strict uh, quarantine because of COVID. So how fast this will actually progress remains to be seen. Do you think the, um, that do you, does it seem to you, and I know this is a big question, I don't know, does it seem to you that the issues with the seven, four, with that, with the, with the, the, the max airplane, um, uh, have been addressed adequately enough that you would feel comfortable putting them into service on a mass, on a, on a, on a large basis? Yeah, I'm sure that uh, there's no problem. I'd ride on a MAX. Uh, I just want to be sure that the airline that was operating it had trained their crews properly and were able to recognize this problem before it occurred. And if it did occur, would be able to deal with it properly. And uh, if this had happened in the first place prior to the other two accidents, we wouldn't be even having this conversation. 
So uh, it was just the, too many failures. And it's, it's certainly been corrected now. It's been uh, every aspect of that airplane has been very, very carefully uh, inspected by both the FAA and the United States. The, the operator is Boeing. Everyone's uh, ended up with dirty laundry because of the MAX situation. Captain Keith Mackey, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You're very welcome, Dr. Leon. Anytime I can help you, just let me know. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Heroic Venezuela. Venezuela heroically faced a brutal empire in the 19th century and is heroically defying yet another in the 21st. Its past triumph fuels its courage and upholds its determination in the present. For further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee of the Black is Back Coalition, Ajamu Baraka. As always, Ajamu, welcome back. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So the article uh, opens on the 13th of April 2002. The people of Venezuela rose up without any formal organization, without any leaders directing the crowds to demand the return of the president they legitimately elected. Hugo Chavez. He had been kidnapped on April 11th by a cabal of the wealthy right-wing elite that had hitherto run the country for decades in their own interest while poverty and misery soared for the people. Ajamu, as we look at Pakistan and Imran Khan and the coup against him and the fact that the U.S. trained officers have attempted at least nine coups and succeeded in at least eight across five West African countries, including Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali, Mauritania, and the Gambia, just to name a few. What's the message that the people of Venezuela send to the world today? They send a message of of defiance, a message that says that they understand that their history is indeed in their hands. You know, what was really important about, about the well, very many, many things important about that, that reversal, of that coup uh, in 2002. Uh, but the main thing was that this signified one of the first times that a coup was reversed uh, in that way, that is uh, by popular power. And it happened at a point in history where the U.S. believed that the 21st century was, in fact, uh, a, a, a century for U.S. continued dominance. Uh, they had already invaded uh, Afghanistan. They were preparing to, in fact, invade uh, uh, Iraq. Uh, and they were kind of filling their oaks, if you 
that plan that he had in Venezuela to overthrow the process in Venezuela uh, was thwarted by the people themselves. So that was a very important symbolic victory of the people. Today, we find that across the, the global south, there's resistance to the attempts on the part of the U.S. to impose its will uh, on the masses of the people. In Pakistan, of course, there's been a uh, successful, if you will, constitutional uh, coup. But the response from the people have been somewhat similar to what we saw in Venezuela. They have not been successful in reversing uh, that coup. But it, it demonstrates that uh, people around the world understand that if there's going to be true uh, independent popular power, that they have to, in fact, assert that. Uh, and they also understand that uh, they're looking at a, uh, a global hegemonic force, the United States of America, that's in rapid decline, uh, and that uh, uh, you can push back on that force and, 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 and are able now to advance your own particular interests. You know, I think it's also important to look at Venezuela today. I recently saw uh, some projections of, you know, a 20 percent increase in, uh, in their economy this year. Now, that may have been, you know, a bit, uh, you know, uh, to say the least, a bit of overconfidence there. But whatever the case, you know, a few years ago, I read that Venezuela's uh, um, uh, economy had literally decreased by 99% as a matter as a, as a result of US sanctions and now we see that you that Venezuela working with other anti-imperialist forces around the world is able to come back and seems to be on the road eventually to a healthy economy your thoughts well you you're absolutely right i mean and so the 20% um, um, expansion uh, has to be put into context uh, because the, the the results of the U.S. blockade uh, with the secondary blockades by most of the European nations, um, the, the plundering of their resources, uh, it had a significant negative impact on the uh, Venezuelan economy. Uh, so, you know, we put that in perspective. The other piece, of course, is the, the changing uh, global dynamics, uh, uh, power dynamics. Uh, Venezuela is going to benefit somewhat from the monumental uncle that the U.S. has uh, created for itself with the war in, in Ukraine um, and the, the resulting uh, uh, issues with the energy prices. Uh, and so, the, you know, that's why they had to go hand in hand in a way to Venezuela to persuade it to uh, be into the process of dialogue to bring some of that Venezuelan oil back on the market. So the prospects for, uh, for, for uh, recovery are looking good. Um, but of course, the U.S. is still not imposed its will on the Latin America continent. And they understand, like everybody in Venezuela and throughout the region understand, that the key to uh, reversing or, uh, uh, the, the influence and, and the hegemony of the U.S. Uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean is to try is to contain Venezuela. So it's a very delicate dance that's being played uh, here in, in our region. To your point about the region, Ecuador, El Salvador, Chile, uh, Peru, there have been uh, uh, Paraguay, Nicaragua. There have been a number of elections over the last year, and there are some taking place this year. Uh, it seems as though just about all of them, if not all of them, are 
overturning the American-backed forces that have been uh, uh, oppressing those countries for a number of years. How confident are you that the results of these elections are a strong statement that will be successful going forward as opposed to a temporary turnaround that will be resisted by the United States? Because we know, as as Garland and I say on, on this show all the time, and we've said this to you before, uh, imperial global hegemons don't go quietly into the night. Dr. Leon, you, you, you're absolutely correct. They don't go softly into the night. But that list of states that you uh, just read uh, reflects the kind of upsurge uh, from the people that signify that uh, that kind of momentum is not going to be reversed. The U.S. was successful a few years ago in uh, turning back uh, what many people refer to as the so-called pink tide. I predicted that when that pink tide was reversed, that the next tide was going to be a lot deeper red. And I think that that's what we are seeing. I think that people also understand that even though they are expressing themselves within the electoral arena, that that's not going to be the arena that is going to bring them ultimate victory. Mm. That the independent organization of the people, the the extra uh, constitutional uh, work, if you will, uh, the building dual power is going to be and is the next stage of resistance here in, in Latin America. So people here are not confused at all. But, you know, one, one election you, you didn't mention, and maybe I didn't hear it, that has significance here in the region, is the election next month in Colombia with the possibility of the first leftist, if you will, uh, government coming to power under Gustavo uh, Petro and the African sister, Francia Marquez. This has uh, this has historical significance here for the region. Uh, Colombia, many people see as the Israel of, of Latin America. Uh, it is the, 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 the nation state that the U.S. operates through uh, to help to uh, police its interests uh, in Latin America. There's no mistake, it's not an accident that, for example, the assassination of the uh, Haitian president, Juvenal, that there were Colombians involved in the training of, of security forces and actually involved in the actual murder itself. Uh, the U.S. has uh, eight bases in Colombia. Uh, Colombia is, is the only Latin American nation that is a, a, a global NATO partner. Uh, it is the country that has been putting the most pressure on Venezuela. So with uh, Gustavo Petro, a ex-guerrilla from M-19, uh, and Francia Marquez, a leader from the uh, black community process um, uh, with the possibility of winning in May, that's going to shift the political momentum even more uh, toward the left. And the Biden administration understands that. And that's why they, they made a, a very interesting and I think dangerous uh, comment about a month ago, uh, saying in public that uh, reminding the Colombians that of the special relationship between uh, the U.S. and many of us saw that as a signal to the political right that says, hey, look, no matter what happens, if you all lose, if you decide to take care of business, uh, don't worry, we, we got your back. And so there's real concerns about that, especially now that we see an uptick in the amounts of death threats being directed toward both uh, Petro and toward Francia. 
Um, if also, could you comment on your thoughts on a Brazilian election and the importance of that? The fifth largest country in the world by landmass, the fifth most populous country in the world. How important is that to the movement towards independence and anti anti imperialism in South America? And also, it's the it's where the the largest number of uh, of Africans outside the continent live. And, and that that point right there, many people don't even realize that that in fact is 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 a, a very historical uh, and important fact, and that's why the connection to Colombia is also important because we have Colombia, Brazil representing the largest number of Africans outside of the continent, and Colombia representing the third largest. Mm -hmm. So yes, that 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 election will be important. Uh, there are some concerns that. Uh, uh, Lula and the uh, Workers' Party still haven't learned a lesson in terms of of, of their commitment to uh, what appears to be neoliberal politics. But I think it still will be uh, an important election in helping to turn the momentum and inspiring people across the con continent and across the region uh, that the possibility of real independent politics free of the complete domination by the U.S. is, in fact, possible. And how significant was the election in Chile? Because I think the one of the adages during that election last year was uh, neoliberalism started in Chile and has now died in Chile. Uh, what what does that say to you? Well, I think the symbolic importance of it is is there. Um, I don't see neoliberalism dying in Chile yet, as I don't see it dying across the uh, continent yet. Uh, but it has taken a significant blow. I'm concerned with some of the uh, comments that have come from the new leadership in Chile, uh, comments that seem to be geared toward trying to separate the Chilean uh, exp uh, project uh, from uh, more radical expressions like uh, the like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. I think that's a very dangerous route to take, especially understanding uh, that even if you are attempting or pretending to play games or cooperate with the U.S., they still see you as a, as a threat, and they're going to undermine you. And if you, if you then uh, um, undermine your, your potential support from the left in the region, then you're just going to be left out uh, to 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 hang, if you will. So it's important. Uh, it reflects uh, the upsurge again of the people, uh, but uh, we have to be watching this very closely to see what kind of of, of direction this new leadership is really going to take uh, that country. As 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 Americans, especially uh, African Americans, face repression and a government that is ignoring its interests, and particularly a Democratic Party that is ignoring its base. Uh, what can we learn here from the focused and determined people of Venezuela? That is a very good question. What we have to learn is that we have to have independent radical politics. Part of the, the main issue with politics in the U.S., radical politics in the U.S., is that uh, many of the organized formations have aligned themselves with the uh, Democrat Party, which means they have aligned themselves with neo with neoliberal uh, rightist policies. And therefore, they have uh, undermined the ability to have an independent and radical voice and undermined the ability to expand their bases. So what needs to be learned by the radical movement in the U.S. is the commitment to independent politics, to not be tied in 
and allow yourself to become sheepdogs uh, for the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party's interest is is in, in contradiction to the interest of, of, of the base, the base of working class people and poor people in the U.S. So that lesson, which should be obvious, is still a lesson that, uh, for reasons that are, I guess, complicated, the left has still not been able to learn yet, to the detriment of the people. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate your analysis. And please stay with me just for a second. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.